Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. So tonight, Romans 15, we hear that Christians must reflect Christ. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell on me. None of us lives to himself. This is what Paul told us last week. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul told us back in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So not where Peter and Paul, they were reproached, they were insulted, they were calumniated. All the little Christ. To be a Christian in the Greek meant to be a little Christ. If Christ was reproached, insulted, and calumniated, so were they. If Christ was killed, so were they. Every single one except St. John was martyred of the 12, of the original 12. And all three of these early apostolic fathers, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and Polycarp of Smyrna will all be martyred. They left behind their letters. They're not in the scriptures, but oftentimes when people read the history and the letters of the apostolic fathers, they will have conversions to the Catholic faith. Clemens I, he was the fourth pope of Rome. He was born in Italy in 35 AD. He died in 99 AD at age 63. He was bishop of Rome from 88 to 99. Clemens, he's sometimes called in Roman or Clement, and he was the fourth pope, Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement, and he has this letter attributed to him. And he also, in his letter, it indicates that the Roman church was intervening in affairs of neighboring churches and providing instruction on organizational matters. So we see the early underpinnings of church leadership, hierarchy, and magisterium. His name, Clement's name, is mentioned in Eucharistic prayer number one in communion union with those memories who we venerate, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus. And in the, the Liber Pontificalis, it's a book of biographies of popes up until the 15th century, from Peter to the 15th century. It says, it supports the further belief that Clement of Rome personally knew St. Peter and that he wrote these two letters which are preserved. We know he also knew Paul. He knew both Peter and Paul, Philippians 4. Paul mentioned him as a co-worker. So we know that Clement was said to have been consecrated by by St. Peter, and that he was a leading member of the Church of Rome in the first century. And Clement died in the third year of Emperor Trajan's reign in 101 AD. And according to tradition, Clement was imprisoned under Emperor Trajan, and he is recorded to have led a ministry among the fellow prisoners. And that prison ministry, first prison ministry, probably not the first because Paul did the same thing, preaching to prisoners, that got Clement in more trouble, and he was thereafter executed by martyrdom. His form of martyrdom was being tied, an anchor tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. And so he is the patron saint of mariners. This particular cross is an anchor cross or 
it's called a mariner's cross or it's called St. Clement's cross. It's like the cross of his martyrdom that was tied across his neck. And so when you go to St. Clemente's in Rome, St. Clement's church in Rome, you'll see the anchor at the top of the altar. This is his church in Rome, very near the Colosseum. Down below is a fourth century church. You also see the anchor there on the altar, the mariner's cross, St. Clement's cross, his instrument of martyrdom. You see it on medals. He's standing there with a big anchor. His feast day is November 23rd. We still celebrate it to this day. And here's what one of his letters said about the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. Clement 1, chapter 5. Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labors. And when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due him. Of St. Paul, he says, owing to envy, Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee and stoned. After preaching both in the East and the West, he gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West, which would be Spain, and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Thus he was removed from the world and went to the holy place, having proved himself a striking example of patience. Clement's Church in Rome is one of my favorite places to visit because you get so much history there. There's three layers of construction on top of one another, and archaeologists love it. Three levels of buildings from, from a Roman house church to pagan temples, very near the Colosseum, only 300 meters away, where that statue of Nero would have been, the 98-foot bronze. So in on the base of it, the construction of the first century down low, St. Clement slice about 60 feet lower in the first century than it is now. And after the fire of 64, they gutted the buildings. They were filled in and used for foundations for the third level houses, the level that is roughly at the floor of the Colosseum today. And history buffs love. World travelers come to San Clemente uh, because there's 2,000 years of history there, the mosaics, the frescoes, and the fourth century basilica, and then even lower down to the first century Rome, where there is that pagan temple and Roman houses from before the fire. There's at the very, very bottom is the Roman cult of Mithras and the archaeological reliefs that have been taken there. Some of them are at the Louvre. They come from first century Rome, Mithras killing the bull. There's also these same type of artifacts in the Roman bathhouses. They were found in the baths of Diocletian in Rome. So there's that Roman cult. We were talking about these cult places, these temples last week, over 400, one on every street corner of Rome in the first century. The house churches, it said in that last reading that Paul went from house to house. These Roman houses, house churches, they're still streams of running water deep down under San Clemente. These would have been what houses look like at the time of Nero before the fire. And then beautiful frescoes at St. Clement right there. There's St. Uh, Catherine of Alexandria with her spoke of the will, her torturing method, the beautiful tile work. The fourth century church is a beautiful basilica. This is what it would have looked like back in the day. And then the top layer today, St. Clemente's and the beautiful asp of the tree of life above the, the main altar. It's just the most incredible mosaic in the story. I could sit there all afternoon and, and get all the signs and symbols. And there at the altar is the, is the cross with the anchor, the instrument of martyrdom for St. Clement. Beautiful frescoes. They keep refurbishing them, restoring them. They're even more vibrant than last time I saw them. But that's St. Clement, our first apostolic father. So last week, we were talking about these two groups of Romans, Roman Christians, the new Roman Gentile Christians and the old Roman Jewish 
Christians that are returning back after Claudius has died, I think it's 54 AD, they're returning back to Rome. We have these tensions, we have this conflict that Paul's addressing. And last week he told us that some are strong in faith and some are weak in faith and the, because of what they're eating. The strong in faith were the Roman converts and the weak in faith were actually the skeptical Jews returning back from expulsion and not trusting in the grace of God, that they are still judging about food laws and ceremonial laws. And so Paul is continuing now to explain on into Romans chapter 15 when he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Always unity. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul is telling him about the example of Jesus Christ. He didn't live to please himself. The reproach of those who reproach God are going to also reproach Jesus Christ because God and Jesus and the Father are one and the same. In the NIV, a different translation, it says the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me because we're one and the same, the Father and the Son. Psalm 69.9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Paul is praying with that. Paul is thinking about that. Psalm 89, a similar sentiment. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. Now, Jesus said this himself in John 15 to his disciples. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. If I had not done among them, the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father because they're one and the same. If you persecute the father, you persecute me. So Jesus is saying to them, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you because we're one and the same. You're baptized into me. You're a little Christ. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated me for no reason. So in Paul's time, and it should be for us too, being a Christian in the Greek meant to be a little Christ, to be a part of Christ. You're baptized into Christ. You're baptized into his life and into his death. It's no longer us that live, but Christ who lives in us. Paul has just told us last chapter, if we live for Christ, we die for Christ. He told the Philippians, I shall not be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So it's, he's indifferent about it. It doesn't matter if I live or die, all is Christ. And he said last week to us, none in Romans 14, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Ignatius of Loyola called this, this holy indifference. It doesn't matter. We belong to the Lord. So Paul's echoing that a bit here, telling us about the example of Jesus Christ. For Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. To reproach someone, what's that? I looked it up. To express disapproval or disappointment. To rebuke, to reprove, to admonish, scold, reprimand, upbraid, lambast, criticize, censure, or condemn. Would you be condemned for Christ? Would you suffer that reproach? The other synonym to insult, I looked it up, to treat someone with disrespect, scornful abuse, to offend, to affront, 
to disparage, to discredit, to slander, to revile, to humiliate, to mortify, to belittle, or to calumniate. That word hit me. What's it mean? I looked it up. The act of uttering false charges or misrepresentations malicely calculated to harm another's reputation. It's exactly what was done to Jesus Christ, and it's exactly what is being done to the early Christians from Nero and everyone else to calumniate. And I thought, where have I heard this word before? And then I remembered in the litany of humility, a beautiful, beautiful prayer. If you don't know it, look it up, and I dare you to try to pray it. It's a very difficult prayer to pray and a very important prayer to pray. But it says in this prayer, from the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, O Jesus, from the fear of being forgotten, being ridiculed, being wronged, being suspected, all the things that Paul's talking about here today, this reproach, this insult, this calumniation. The Litany of Humility was written by Mary Cardinal Devell. He is a Spanish Roman Catholic cardinal from the Basque region of Spain. His mother came from the Basque country of Spain, exactly the area that Ignatius of Loyola came from. He has some Jesuit training in his repertoire, and he wrote this prayer, from the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, O Jesus. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. The fear of suffering reproach or insult on behalf of being a Christian in imitation of Christ, to be a little Christ, to suffer being calumniated. The Cardinal says, silence and solitude make up the atmosphere of the cross. And we cannot live without the cross. It is the gift of our Lord for those who love him. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, O Jesus. Before becoming a Cardinal, Mary Delval served as the secretary of the conclave that elected Pope Pius X, who went on to become a great saint, who is said to have accepted his election as Pope through Mary Devell's encouragement. The same Pope, Pius X, later appointed Mary Devell as the Cardinal Secretary of State. Very high position. The Cardinal lent his service to the Holy Father with such resitude that neither the common desire of praises, nor servile fear, nor temptations of popularity could influence him in the least. St. Pius X usually referred to Mary Devell as his Cardinal, and every time he spoke of him, he could not hide the joy of having him at his side, saying on several occasions, that he knew not how to thank our Lord enough for giving him such a precious collaborator. That is why the Chamberlain to his Holy Land would write, rightly witness and write this. During the whole of the pontificate of the saintly Pope Pius X, there were occasions when I had dealing with Cardinal Mary Devell, his intelligence was equal to his soul. I served as best I could this great servant of the greatest of masters. I can still hear St. Pius X saying to me, to separate myself from Cardinal Devall, I would rather be separated from my head. Wow! Cardinal Mary Devell was the composer of the Litany of Humility, which continues to be a prayer popularly featured in prayer books, and his beatification is ongoing. He is now a servant of God, and he is buried in the tombs in the Vatican grottos under St. Peter's Basilica. So if you're touring down there, look for the tomb of Cardinal Mary Duvall. He also wrote this, the beautiful virtue of humility seems to be so little understood. God in is as much as he as God could not practice humility, but used condescension. He lowered himself to come to us. Let us strive to descend to lower ourselves in order to imitate him. This is what Paul's saying tonight, that we are to be the example of Christ. Christ didn't please himself. He's not out for himself. But the reproach of those who reproached you, O Father, reproached me. So from the fear of being calumniated, 
Deliver me, O oh Jesus. Let me not be afraid to be called out for you, to be a Christian. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that you may have one voice, glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Just last chapter, Paul told us, don't judge one another. Don't be a stumbling block for another. Have unity, mutual upbringing, affirmation. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The early church was all about unity. St. Peter said in his in, in 1 Peter 3, with some of his final writings, finally, all of you have unity, unity of spirit, sympathy of love of a brethren, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Christ did not please himself. Peter said this in 1 Peter 4, let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or a wrongdoer, or a mischief maker. Yet, if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But under that name, let him glorify God. Remember when Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. I am a Christian. This is what the early Christians proclaimed. I am a little Christ. Three very important apostolic fathers that came next all believed in unity. Ignatius of Antioch had a rich teaching. All of it could be summed up in one word, unity. True, true Christianity is all about unity. Unity with and unity in the Trinity, because they're the perfect unity. As a result, unity with one another, communion. Our catechism at 815, it says, what about the bonds of unity? Above all, charity, love, binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is talking about Ignatius of Antioch in the catechism. The unity of the pilgrim church is also assured by visible bonds of communion, profession of one faith received from the apostles, common celebration of divine worship, especially the sacraments, and apostolic succession through the sacrament of holy orders maintaining the fraternal concord of God's family. Like Paul, Ignatius of Antioch, the second church father I want to talk about, he associated the Eucharist with unity. After insisting on the importance of avoiding schism, Ignatius of Antioch wrote, while walking to his martyrdom in Rome, he writes, seven letters. He says to the Philadelphians, make it a point then to participate in one Eucharist for the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ is one and one is the cup that yields unity in his blood. He's on his way to Rome to be martyred, to be ripped apart by lions in the Colosseum. And he's, these are his final words. Every time they sit down in the evening as he's walking, he walks a long distance. He's going, he's going to write a letter. Five Letters to local churches in Asia Minor, one to St. Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, one to the church up ahead at Rome. The letters are brief, they're forceful, it's his final thoughts, they're important, they're concise, but their depth has to be unpacked slowly with prayer. Some of his quotes are this, he's walking to be martyred. Right observance of the Eucharist safeguards unity in the apostolic faith. To the Smyrnians, Ignatius of Antioch stressed the link between Eucharistic worship and communion with Christ's hierarchy that fosters unity among the community of believers. He lamented that those who hold heretical opinions about the grace of Jesus Christ refuse to acknowledge that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father by his goodness raised up. 
because it unites us to Christ who suffered and was raised, the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality, the antidote we take in order not to die but to live forever in Jesus Christ. He says this medicine, the Eucharist, however, does not leave us untransformed. For in this case, the medicine is the physician himself, the divine physician, Jesus Christ. He himself is our never-failing life. And to be united to the person of Jesus also means being united to his faithfulness and love toward God and others. The Eucharist literally enacts belief in the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who is both from Mary and from God, truly son of man and truly son of God. He already got the dual nature of Jesus. It was in Ignatius's own city, Antioch, Syria, where disciples were first called Christians. In Acts 11, we're told for a whole year, Saul stayed on in Antioch. They met there with the church. They taught a large company of people in Antioch and they were first called Christians there. Peter tells us, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, a wrongdoer, a mischief maker, because if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. The early Christian martyrs started saying before they were martyred, I am a Christian. They would proclaim it, became the martyr's constant courageous refrain before dying, I am a little Christ. And for his part, Ignatius hoped that he would not merely be called a Christian, but actually prove to be a Christian. He urged others, that we are not just called to be Christians, but we are actually called to be Christians. And the closer he would get to Rome, the more he was anticipating his death. Listen to this writing. He's getting very close to Rome. How I look forward to the lions who have been prepared for me. All I pray is that I will find them swift. I'm going to make overtures to them so that they will devour me with all speed. And if they are reluctant, I shall have to use force on them. Fire, cross, breast fighting, hacking and quartering, splintering of bone and mangling of limb, even the pulverizing of my whole body. For every horrid and diabolical torment come upon me, provided only that I can win my way to Jesus Christ. There is a rendition of his trial from 107 AD before the Roman Emperor Trajan. It's called the Martyrdom of Ignatius. I won't relay it here because of time. Ignatius, the Christian bishop from Syria, Antioch, was torn to pieces by lions in Rome's Colosseum as 87,000 Romans approved and applauded. He said before he was put in with the lions, I am the wheat of God and I am ground by the teeth of the wild beasts that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Even Eucharistic, even wanting to be pulverized and to be the bread of Christ. Only the harder parts of his holy remains were left behind. The lions had eaten all of him except his bones. His friends wrapped the gnawed bones in linen and took them back to Antioch. Later in the 7th century, his bones, his relics, were shipped to Rome in the 7th century where they also reside under the high altar at St. Clemente in Rome, along with St. Clement. So like Paul today in the Romans 15, these martyrs were not afraid to suffer reproach for the name of Christ. The last one I'd like to tell you about is Polycarp. St. Jerome writes that Polycarp was a disciple of John and that John had ordained him to be a bishop of Smyrna. He's regarded as one of these three chief apostolic fathers, along with Clement and Ignatius. During the first century, Judaism was a legal religion with the protection of Roman law, worked out in compromise with the Roman state over two centuries. In contrast, Christianity was not legalized until 313 in the Edict of Milan. Observant Jews had special rights, including the privilege of abstaining from 
civic pagan rites. Christians were initially identified with Jewish religion by Romans, but they became more distinct and Christianity became a problem for Roman rulers. So around 98 AD, the Roman emperor Nerva decided that Christians did not have to pay the annual tax upon the Jews, effectively recognizing them as a distinct religion apart from rabbinic Judaism. And this opened the way for Christians to be persecuted for disobedience to the emperor then if they refused to worship at the state pantheon of all the gods. So from 98 AD onward, there was a distinction made between Christians and Jews in Roman literature. It became apparent. Pliny the Younger postulates that Christians are not Jews since they do not pay the temple tax. So he writes that in his letters to Emperor Trajan. When Emperor Marcus Aurelius came along to the Roman throne, he started up a very first persecution against Christians. The pagans demanded that the judge search for Polycarp, the father of all Christians and the seducer of all Asia, the seducer of souls. So Polycarp was brought in to trial. He firmly confessed his faith in Christ. He was condemned to be burned alive. The executioners wanted to nail him to a post, but he declared that God would give him the strength to endure the flames so they could merely tie him with ropes. I believe he was in his 80s. They bound him with his hands behind like a ram to the to the sacrifice, ready to be an acceptable burnt offering to God. He looked up to heaven and he said, O Lord God, Almighty Father, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and all the righteous who live before you. I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined revealed to me and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and I glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved son. To you with him through the Holy Ghost be glory both now and forever. Amen. The fire was lit. The flame was blazing furiously. We who were privileged to witness it saw a great miracle and that is why we have been preserved to tell the story. The fire shaped itself into the form of an ark like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind and formed a circle around the body of the martyr many paintings of this. Inside it, he looked not like flesh that is burned, but like bread that is baked or gold and silver glowing in a furnace. And we smelled a sweet scent like frankincense or some other precious spice. Another report via Polycarpe reported that the burning Polycarp gave off the smell of baking bread very Eucharistic. Eventually, when those wicked men saw that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded the executioner to pierce him with a dagger. And when they did, such a great quantity of blood flowed forth that the fire was extinguished. If you think I will swear by the genius of Caesar, then you don't know who I am. Hear me clearly. I am a Christian. These were some of the final words of Polycarp of Smyrna. Hear me clearly. I am a Christian. Could we say that today? Would we say that today? We celebrate his feast day on February 23rd. Could we say today, fear me from the free of being humiliated. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, wronged, or suspected, deliver me, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise and thank you for the martyrs of the early church, their blood that seeded the church. 
like wildfire. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for their courage, for their resolve, for their examples, for their witness that they were little Christ, anointed by you, filled with the courage of your Holy Spirit, willing to even die for their faith. May we also have that spirit of courage from your Holy Spirit. May we too have resolve. May we not be afraid to be despised, to be reproached, to be insulted, to be calumniated for your namesake. We pray. Amen. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.